Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today uh, is our last teaching in the book of Romans, and uh, we need to go a little bit beyond the Romans context today. We're talking about something from Romans 16, but I want to talk about a few passages of Scripture that relate to it, sort of the other side of the coin. Uh, Next week, we'll begin a series uh, from the Gospels, so looking forward to that. But I've entitled today's message, Jesus' Broken Prayer. More than... For more than 40 years, the lighthouse stood on a large peninsula jutting out into the Tasman Sea in southern Australia. It stood at a place where it shouldn't have, luring ignorant ships into the very rocks that they were trying to avoid. It was a bad placement for this construction. Glyphs around Cape St. George, just south of Jervis Bay, were notorious for shipwrecks. So it was decided that a lighthouse was needed for a safe navigation of coastal shipping. And in 1857, the Colonel Architect Alexander Dawson began looking for a site suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. Unfortunately, Mr. Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction rather than providing an efficient navigation aid. So when the Pilots Board went to certify the location Dawson chose, they found that the site wasn't visible from the required approaches the ships were going to take. They also found his map suffered from discrepancies so grave it's impossible to decide whether positions marked on the map really even exist. The board also suspected that Dawson chose the site solely because it was situated closer to a quarry that he wanted to get stones from. Despite the glaring deficiencies and disagreement by a majority of the board, for reasons not known, the chairman of board authorized the construction of the lighthouse according to Dawson's plans. For the next four decades, this ill-sighted lighthouse was responsible for about two dozen shipwrecks. People died because of this. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the point perpendicular lighthouse in a much more suitable location on this part of the coast. But even after decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause navigational problems, especially when the moon was out and the golden sandstone tower would glow in the dark. So near the turn of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. So what was intended to rescue people, what was intended to save people, actually sort of took them astray and caused death and destruction. The church is a lighthouse for the world. It's intended to shine the light of truth into the culture. It protects people from spiritual danger. It steers them around everything that threatens their spiritual condition. It's salt and light. It gets them to a spiritual destination that they simply otherwise would not find. That's who we are. That's the purpose of the church. That's what's supposed to happen. But what if the church isn't the church? What if it's like that lighthouse? What if it sort of positioned itself in the wrong place? What if it's actually not setting on the right foundation? What if it's actually leading people astray and causing them shipwreck in their spiritual lives rather than guiding them to the place that God wants them to be? Jesus left 
the earth about 2,000 years ago. Now, I get it. His presence is here. I get it that we're indwelt by his spirit, etc. But Jesus isn't here like he was 2,000 years ago to protect the lighthouse. There are two values that I want to talk about today. Two values that exist in the church, among many other values, but two that exist in all churches to some degree, and they sort of almost compete with each other. One of them is unity. One of them is doctrinal purity. Unity and doctrinal purity. And there's two passages I want to share. One that is Jesus' final prayer, which I would say, and I hate to say this, I don't want the lightning to strike. If it strikes, I'll pray it doesn't hit you too. Sorry about that. But it might strike me. But Jesus prayed this prayer, and I would say it was not answered. I know that sounds a little heretical, but I think when you see it, you'll understand why I'm saying that. Jesus prayed a prayer right before he left that I would suggest was not answered in any meaningful way. John 17, 21 his high priestly prayer right before he is arrested in the garden. He's talking about the future church, the body of Christ, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So just before the betrayal, just before the cross, unity in the body, in this group of followers known as sort of the disciples, unity is one of Jesus' greatest concerns, that the world would see a group of people who are connected to each other, who can't be torn apart. And actually that unity is so, I don't know the perfect word, but maybe almost intimate and unable to be broken, that the Trinity itself, the connection between Jesus and his Father, is actually the model or the example he's using of what he wants to see in the body. Just like the Father and I are connected, so I want people in the body of Christ to be connected. And the motive that Jesus gives is this witness to the world, that this would be such an unusual group of people that the world would notice. That normal differences that would divide people Race, economic status, other kinds of issues, just things that we have in common or don't have in common. The kinds of things that would normally divide people and and put them into factions or groups would, would not exist in the church because in that kind of a setting where people love each other at that level, it would be a witness to the world because the world doesn't function that way. So that's Jesus' prayer, which I would suggest has been largely unanswered. And then you've got Romans 16, which is the other side of this spectrum. Romans 16, 17 through 20. I'm going to put just the first verse up there from Romans. I'm going to read the whole passage. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, presumably the teaching that he's given us in the book of Romans. He's ending his letter here. And turn away from them. Other translations, avoid them. Mark them and avoid them, he says. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The report of your obedience is reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Here, 
in this last section on Romans, which is kind of interesting because after Romans 14 and 15 where Paul talks about these questionable areas we talked about a couple weeks ago, things Christians might not all see the same way on, you know, uh, drinking or uh, playing cards or dancing or, you know, questions about what's worldly and what isn't, those kinds of things. There's really not another major topic. Paul's doing some housekeeping in chapter, the end of uh, 15 and in 16. He's saying, you know, greet so-and-so. Say hi to this person. Thank you. And he's doing that sort of thing, you know, kissing babies and hugging people. It's pre-COVID. So he's doing all those kinds of things. And then he just sort of interrupts his housekeeping and says, oh, by the way, I'm concerned because trouble's coming. There's going to be some people who want to sort of get under your skin theologically, teach you some things that I've just taught you are not true I want you to mark them, I want you to identify who they are, and I want you to avoid them. So we got Jesus' prayer for unity, and we've got Paul's argument here at the end of his book for doctrinal purity, because he fears for the church. He knows the lighthouse needs to keep its moorings in the right place. It needs to be positioned correctly, that if truth isn't preserved, you're not guiding people towards the light anymore. He knows that the gospel is new, which it is, Paul knows that this gospel is new, that we always have been saved by faith through grace, but the knowledge about Jesus and what he did on the cross, that's new. So he knows that many of his teachings are gonna be misrepresented, and they were in the early church. Yet a few groups of people, you can just forget these labels after I say them, but one of them was called the antinomians. It's like no, anti, nomos, law, no law. So they didn't believe that they were under the law anymore. So that group of people said, hey, we can do whatever we want, because even the apostle Paul said we're not under the the Old Testament covenant. We're not under the Jewish code anymore. Therefore, there's no boundaries. We can do whatever we want. We can love God, and we can let our bodies just serve themselves. So Paul knew that kind of thing was going to happen, and so he's warning about it. And then there were other people who said Paul was wrong. Those were called like the Judaizers. They said that to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew first because that was God's chosen people. And so they would also sort of be dogging the church. And they said new Christians needed to keep the old covenant too. And and there were other groups as well. Imagine the theological confusion in the first century. Just try to take yourself out of your Christian understanding, try to think about what it would be like without a New Testament. So the Apostle Paul is saying you're not under the Old Testament code and you have no New Testament. Think about that. You're not under the Old Testament code and there's no new Bible yet. There was massive theological confusion and argument in the early church until they had the canon of Scripture. So here's the tension I want to explore between this issue of unity, which Jesus is praying for, and doctrinal purity or agreement that Paul's talking about. If Christians feel, if you or I feel that doctrinal purity and agreement on everything, not just maybe what Paul is talking about, but everything, we've got to agree on everything, we've got to get everything in everybody's minds the same way, exactly what we think the Bible teaches, or in this case, exactly what I think the Bible teaches, we have to agree on everything, there's rarely going to be unity. On the other hand, if Christians feel that unity is the most important value in the church, that we just have to love each other in some sort of squishy way, there will often be a struggle in those kinds of organizations for doctrinal purity. Both of these values are important. They're both represented in the scriptures. How do we hold them equally important and sort of resolve that tension? How do we 
balance those two seemingly, at times, conflicting values. Just want to look at a couple of points here and then a few applications. First, doctrine matters, and the early church fought for doctrinal integrity. That's what Romans 16 is about, those few verses that we read. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, on a few choice occasions, and I, I don't think I've run into this here, but I've, I've run into Christians who have literally said to me things like this. I don't care about doctrine. I, I don't care about doctrine. You know, Christianity is just about loving Jesus. And I need to tell you that Jesus is actually not flattered by that comment as much as he's included in the love Jesus part. He's not pleased with that. And I think it's just an ignorant statement when people don't understand what doctrine actually is because it's really everything we believe. So when you say you don't care about doctrine, it's like saying I don't care about the New Testament. I don't care that I get any of it right. Because Jesus cares about theology and doctrine. Jesus claimed to be God. Theology is the study of God. That's theology. He claimed to be the only path to heaven. That's the doctrine of salvation. That's soteriology. He corrected the Pharisees and Sadducees on their theology about many issues. He warned about false teachers because he didn't want true doctrine to be threatened by false teachers. He spoke about the third person in the Trinity. That's pneumatology. That's our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He spoke about the future. That's eschatology. Eschaton means end or last. He spoke about his own uniqueness and what his death, burial, and resurrection would mean. That's Christology. It's doctrine. He weighed in on the Old Testament and that it came from God and its teachings. That's bibliology. He spoke about Adam and Eve and creation. That's anthropology. That's doctrine. He spoke about a future movement of followers that we called the church. That's ecclesiology. He spoke about sin. That's homardiology. It's doctrine. Doctrine is everything as it relates to finding the light, being guided by the lighthouse back to the God that we need to know and that we've been separated from. It's not some sort of boring inconvenience on our spiritual journey with Jesus, because you'll never have a spiritual journey with Jesus unless you have theology of who Jesus is. It's how we know the true God. It's why if you're here, you likely chose Jesus over other gods. It's because of the theology. It's important. It's everything. For nearly 30 years, art forger Mark Landis made headlines for duping dozens of museums into accepting fakes into their collections. He admits he's always had a mischievous streak, and when contacting museums, he would often use aliases and dress like a Jesuit priest, and with his odd demeanor and near encyclopedic knowledge of art history, he could easily come across as an eccentric art collector. His skills with a pencil and paintbrush were undeniable. Often using a magnifying glass, Landis studies a print of an original work and with meticulous attention to detail, copies exactly what he sees, religious icons, impressionist or modern works. His recreations in the style of the old masters were astonishing. So are his tools. His tools were magic markers and pens and Walmart frames, raw materials that proper forgers wouldn't really use. But more than 45 museums could not tell the difference between his copies and the original works. 
Not only were his fakes convincing, he also knew exactly what to say when he met with museums. As one museum director explains, Landis would imply he had more paintings he might donate and possible endorsements, or I should say endowments, from the family's estate. And the museum director admits he knew right where to hit us, our soft spot, art, and money. And this person was a fraud and committed fraud against unsuspecting people who should know better. Paul knew in the future the church would be influenced by people just like that. People who could talk the language, who could substitute a false god for the true god or a false god, false gospel for the true gospel. Doctrine mattered. And that's why Paul says this at the end of Romans. Mark those who cause division who are undermining the teachings of the scriptures and avoid them. But here's the problem. Number two, not all theological issues are created equal or are equally important. And that's something that we struggle with as Christians, and I'll explain why. Now, I think we all believe this, that not all theological issues are created equal and are equally important. I think we all believe it. I believe that. I did not grow up in a background that believed that. In my church, my home church, we would fight about everything, and we were proud of it. And if you didn't agree, we made it very clear you didn't fit in there and you'd have to go to another church where you agreed with 100% of what they taught. So it was a very unforgiving environment for disagreement. But I believe this is true. The problem is the Bible doesn't necessarily really teach it as clearly as we would like. So how do we conclude that not every issue is worthy of a major theological battle? Well, a little observation. When we find these serious statements like Paul is making, what's he really talking about? We've got to look at the context here a little bit. Paul refers in Romans 16 to, to marking those who are causing division and undermining what he's been teaching. He talks about the teaching which you learned. We assume he's talking about the gospel he just delivered to them. And in that gospel, he's talked about being saved by faith. He's talked about our relationship to the law, that that's not how we're saved. He's talked about the work of the Spirit in our lives. Those are major theological issues. If you look at the early church and see what they fought about, you get a good understanding of the kind of thing Paul would be concerned about. I love Acts 15, if not just for comedic value. Acts 15, the early church is having a major debate. Get this. So everybody's got to come from all of the regions where Christianity is spread. We're going to have this big knockdown, drag out fight over whether Gentile converts to Christianity need to become Jews. And here's sort of the, the litmus test. Do Gentile men who were not circumcised need to be circumcised as adults in order to become Christians because the first Christians were Jews? That's the debate. I mean, it's almost funny. But it had serious theological implications. Are we going to make everybody sort of follow the Old Testament code, which God now says we're not under, because that was a treaty between him and Israel? That's the kind of fight they had. In verse 18, Paul refers to the people who are doing this kind of undermining theologically as slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about people who aren't even Christians. He's talking about people who are creating a false gospel. And so it seems that the apostles and Jesus had major issues in mind when they make these really serious statements about division in the church. 2 Corinthians 11 speaks of false apostles, compares them to Satan, who is disguised as an angel of light. Sounds like some pretty serious stuff. 1 John 4, tests the spirits to see whether they are from God, referring to false prophets again. 2 Peter 2, speaks of false teachers, destructive heresies, 
who deny the master who bought them. Again, not even really true believers. Jude warns of people creeping in who will deny Jesus Christ. First Timothy war- or refers to false teachers as the teachings of demons. So when, when the apostles and when Jesus talk about sort of separating from other people in the church over teaching, usually they're over very, very serious theological debates. And that's just a small sample of those kinds of statements in the epistles. The problem is, and this was the problem in the little Baptist church I grew up in, and I would say it's sort of endemic of Christianity in general, many Christians and churches have taken Paul's words and applied them to all theological differences and issues. So whole denominations, I could just give you a list of denominations and the theological distinctions of those denominations, which are typically very minor issues. The difference between uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which I served in for 20-some years, and the Nazarenes uh, over a very minor theological issue. Uh, what Methodists believe as opposed to the rest of evangelicals. Uh, very minor theological differences. That's very common. So many Christians and churches have taken Paul's words and applied them to all kinds of very minor issues. And whole denominations have been birthed and split over minor issues. And that means that at some point in history and at some point in our lives perhaps, we decided that minor issues were more important than Jesus' broken prayer for unity. And when that happens, what it means is we fail to prioritize that some things are more important than others. And we view everything as critical, that everyone needs to agree with us on everything. But we need to prioritize in the church what we have to believe and what we'd like people to believe because not everything is worth a battle or Jesus' prayer for unity can never happen. About 100 years ago, was the birth of something that deeply influenced Bethany Chapel. I believe if this didn't happen, Bethany wouldn't be here. It was called fundamentalism. Now that's a dirty word today, but it wasn't back then. Because now the media will use the word fundamentalist of you know, an Islamic person or, or a Buddhist or, or a Christian to, to talk about people who they believe are extreme. But the word fundamentalist started with a very well-intentioned reason. And I'm going to give you a little history here. So when Darwin came out with his book, The Origin of the Species, and people read it, and they thought, well, this isn't Darwin's theory of evolution. This is absolutely true. It turned Christianity on its head, historically. So when he wrote that book, everyone thought, well, he's a scientist. This must absolutely be fact. Therefore, Genesis can't be true. And also, all supernatural things really can't be true. Miracles can't be true, because now we have an explanation for everything from, you know, from a natural perspective. That God didn't intervene in the creation of the world, that really things just sort of evolved by chance. And therefore, the miracles in creation had to be set aside for a different view. And once that happened, they said, well, that means miracles in general probably aren't true. And so they set aside the virgin birth of Christ. They set aside Jesus' miracles. They set aside, to some degree, whether Jesus was even a true historical figure. And there was this massive response to Darwinian evolution that just rocked the church And that's where much of liberal Protestantism was born, and conservative Protestantism sort of came out of it. And there were a group of people who said, you know what, we have to fight for the faith. 
And they got together and they started thinking what, what is absolutely essential that we can get everyone agreeing on to say that we're still remaining faithful to God and faithful to the truth. And so some sort of little documents or pamphlets were written. And here were the five fundamentals of the faith that they came up with. The inerrancy of the Bible. That when the scriptures were written in the original autographs, they were without error. That it could be trusted. The literal nature of the Bible, especially creation and Christ's miracles. In other words, the Bible is not just an allegorical book that really the things that are presented as history were history. The virgin birth, that had been under assault. The bodily resurrection and future return of Christ, again, a miraculous issue, he's raised from the dead. The substitutionary atonement, that what Jesus did on the cross is what saves us. And they prioritized what they called these essentials, these fundamentals of the faith. And that sort of became conservative evangelical theology. Without that, there's a good chance half of you wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't know God. Because this shaped seminaries. New schools were formed. Other schools were considered liberal. Conservative schools were born that said, we really do believe the Bible. We're going to stand by this. And without these individuals, 100 years ago, seminaries and denominations would have been lost, and many were. Those early fundamentalists, and again, I realize that's sort of a dirty term today. It's been destroyed, as time does with terminology. They prioritized well. We struggle to do that. The Bible doesn't clearly delineate a list of doctrines worth fighting over, but it does demonstrate some. Because when you see these words of the apostles about what's worth a big battle, it tends to be these major issues. So my background, and I suspect most churches don't do this well, because the Bible never says, here's an A issue, here's a B issue, here's a C issue, and here's a D issue. I wish the apostles would have given us the list. But they didn't, so I will. <laughs> so this is the gospel according to Paul, and by that I mean the little Paul, not the big Paul. What's an A issue? Fundamentals of the faith? The kinds of things the fundamentalists 100 years ago said are important. Who Jesus is, what he accomplished, that God created this world. We don't have to agree on every exacting element of that. I get that. I get in a lot of interesting discussions around here with all the geologists about you know, the origins of the universe and so on, and I enjoy that. But that God created that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's miraculous, that he rescued us from our sins, that there is such a thing as sin, that one's under assault today, isn't it? That there actually is a right and wrong, that certain behaviors are considered to be sinful in the eyes of a holy God. They're not just cultural reflections of an ancient world. Those are important things. Those are A issues, big deal. The fight for the Bible, the fight for who Jesus is, how we get to heaven, that there's only one way to heaven. Those are A issues. That's worth a fight. Well, and then there's some B issues. What are those B issues? Well, probably how we view, you know, maybe your mode of baptism, when you're baptized, those kinds of things. They're a big deal. They're not D issues. They're a big deal. Baptism, that splits a lot of different denominations into different groups. It's the difference between Catholics and Lutherans and uh, evangelicals and even different kinds of evangelicals. Gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Are we in primarily a post-charismatic world or should we all be speaking in tongues? You know, that's, that's a big deal. There's some denominations formed over that. 
other doctrines, elements of the Holy Spirit, eternal security. Eternal security is one of the distinctives of the Nazarenes who are more likely to believe you can lose your salvation than maybe a Presbyterian would. You know, it's, it's a distinctive. Those are B issues, kind of a big deal. I think the Bible is pretty clear on most of it, but we don't all agree on it. And then there's C issues. What are C issues? Well, a C issue might be, are we going to be a contemporary church or we just want to do hymns? You know, I don't really think the Bible speaks to that. I would suggest the Bible speaks to it when it comes to the issue of relevance and uh, the Apostle Paul uh, to some degree, but the reality is even the hymns that some of you like who only like hymns were contemporary at one point, believe it or not, and they were probably controversial at that point, believe it or not. So, you know, that's a C issue. It's just not a big deal, and Christians do disagree on it. It, it, it shapes what kind of church cultures different churches have, but it's not a big deal. It's a C issue. And then there are D issues, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, you know, some, you know I, I was from a, ba- uh, a background where, you know, any alcohol was a sin, you know, and, and they sort of turned some scriptures on their heads to, to prove that. And, you know, I couldn't dance, and I still can't dance, by the way, even though I've tried and had a daughter who convinced me to do this, you know, rehearsed dance at her wedding reception, which is online and tragically is an indication that when I dance, it is a sin, but it might not be for you. Card playing, is it wrong to buy a lottery ticket if you're not a compulsive gambler? You know, Christians all have opinions about this stuff, but those are D issues. That's why Paul wrote Romans 14 and 15, where he basically says, you know, we really don't have to agree on this stuff. But as churches, and this church has really got a lot of diversity on a lot of issues, we need to, as individuals, kind of think through what's really important, what's worth a battle, and what isn't. When does Jesus' high priestly prayer come in that the most important thing is we, we have unity, we love each other, we reflect the Trinity, or, or do we have to sort of have a battle over every issue until we agree on A, B, C, and D issues? And third, in non-essentials, unity is both the prayer of Jesus and a command to all churches. Unity is a sign that God is present. Think about that. Unity is a sign that God is present. When Jesus is saying the motive for unity is that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, there's going to be a group of people who get along in such an unusual way that people know something is up there because those people don't look the same, they don't have the same background and a lot of different beliefs, and yet look at how they get together in each other's houses. They seem to love each other. We've got, you know, we've, you look at their potluck. You've got little Jewish children next to all the little, you know, the pork wiener dogs, and you've got Gentile children. You know, even the potlucks were an indication of the cultural clash between these two groups of people who learned to love each other. The world looked at that and said, it's kind of strange, but you got to respect it. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12 is a verse about unity in a church that had none of it. Paul says, now I exhort you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree. Doesn't necessarily mean we agree on everything like we have the same opinion, but we, we agree. There be no divisions among you you be made complete in the same mind, the same judgment, as much as we can get on the same page, but we're not all going to have the same views. I've been informed concerning you that by Chloe's people, I've been in touch with Chloe's people, they've been Snapchatting me, that there are quarrels among you, 
That's in the Greek. Now, I mean this, that each of you, each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Those are the really spiritual ones. I don't follow any earthly leaders at all. I'm just a Jesus follower. This is the perfect example. Factions were likely based on personality, style, emphasis. Sin was just rampant in that church when you read that book. Division was the norm. I printed about 10 pages on the subject of unity. There are like 10 pages of verses in the New Testament. Interspersed throughout the epistles and the gospels. Unity is referred to as the unity of the Spirit. Think about that. It's the unity of the Spirit because the Spirit needs to be there for it to happen. It comes from humility and love. Rivalry and jealousy get in its way. It prioritizes others. It reflects that we're part of a body, that we're not independent. It comes theologically from spirit baptism. In other words, when you, were, when you became a Christian, you were baptized in the body of Christ with all these people you might disagree with, but you, doesn't, you're stuck with them. You're stuck with me. How painful for you. It overcomes racial and economic differences, and it's intended to overcome the, the, the D issues and the C issues, maybe some of the B issues, not the A issues, but it's intended to overcome a lot of the B, C, and D issues. Unity is a God thing because unity is supernatural. Disunity is a normal human thing. That's just what we do by nature. It's not hard. So how do we look at this? How do I wrap this together? First, a few apps. Theology matters. Everything starts there. It's why I'm a Christian instead of a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Buddhist. Theology matters a lot. We believe that God has revealed himself. We believe this is a trustworthy record of the history of God guaranteed by God through inspiration and sovereignly protected by God as the Bible was put together and reproduced over the centuries. We believe we know God through his word. And the A issues are worth fighting for. They really are. And the Bible demonstrates that. We need to protect the lighthouse at all costs because people's lives depend on the lighthouse being the lighthouse. Second, God cares about being represented accurately. You say, well, if we're only protecting the A issues, nothing else really matters. I don't want to get in the weeds too much here, but that's not true. The Bible's pretty clear on a lot of the B issues and even some of the C issues that we might disagree on, but it doesn't mean God hasn't spoken, and sometimes the problem is getting to our understanding or getting to a proper understanding of what he said, and there's a lot at stake when we open the Bible. Not all sermons are about the A issues, and so leaders, teachers, elders have a great responsibility. We care about B and C issues where God speaks to them. That's why in James chapter 3, verse 1, this is not a friendly verse for people in my job. James says, you know what, <laughs> you may not want a desire to be a teacher at all in the church because you're going to be judged with the greater strictness by God. In other words, you want to represent the lighthouse? You better give people a proper map about how to get there or you're in trouble with God. 2 Timothy 2.15, as Paul is giving Timothy, young Timothy, some instructions about how to you know, be effective in ministry, he talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, there's a way to wrongly divide the word of truth. 
as somebody who's studied this book his whole life and was raised in the church and went through all the, you know, the college, seminary, etc., people can twist the Scriptures to say just about anything if they're intent on doing it. But the Scriptures, even though they're a complex book, it's not that hard with good scholarship and reading people who've given their lives to it to understand what God is saying through the Word of God. And we need to be as accurate with it as possible. And Paul says that to Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth as opposed to Scripture twisting 101, etc., etc. The Department of Justice filed charges. This would only happen in the U.S., so we'll just talk about them in a negative moment. The Justice Department filed charges against a father and his three sons for the role in illegally selling industrial bleach as, guess what, a COVID cure. The bleach itself is not illegal, but according to officials, the family business consisted of fraudulently marketing the toxic chemicals as a miracle cure. According to the criminal complaint, Mark Grennan of Bradenton, Florida, along with his adult sons, repeatedly told their customers that their miracle, mineral miracle solution could cure not only COVID-19, but also various other ailments, including malaria and cancer, and in some cases, living. It'll cure living. Drink the bleach. You don't have to worry about COVID anymore nor a pulse. According to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of Florida, the FDA has received reports of people requiring hospitalizations, developing life-threatening conditions, and dying after drinking MMS. The DOJ alleges the Grennan sold thousands of bottles of this solution, netting over a million dollars. They also were accused of attempting to operate as a religious nonprofit, the Genesis to Church of Healing and Health, so they would avoid government scrutiny. Now here's my point. Sadly, there are a lot of people who are pretty gullible in the world about religious truth, and they will believe just about anything. And we believe we have God's word, his record of activity among the human family throughout history, and the record of him sending his son and he doesn't want anyone using his book to sell something he didn't intend. The A issues are worth fighting over. But B and C issues do matter too. And we should do our best to reflect God and represent him accurately. And I got to tell you, the older I get, 39 now, turning 40. And I really mean this. And this is the saddest thing I ever can say unless I'm talking about hell. But sometimes our greatest challenge, especially for the next generation, always for the next generation really, is to simply unapologetically believe this book. It's hard. Every generation grows up and recognizes, if I'm going to believe that, I am not going to fit in, and it has never been more true. You are not going to fit in with the prevailing culture. Sorry, if mom hasn't told you that, Dad hasn't told you that, I'm telling you that you're not going to fit in. Your life will be blessed, but it'll be harder. But you will know God. God cares about being represented accurately. Third, just because it's broken doesn't mean we aren't responsible to fix it or try. You know, I love this. One of the illustrations about gossip is, you know, gossip is like when somebody tears open a feather pillow and the feathers go everywhere. And, of course, then the conclusion is, you know, they hit the wind and you can never get all the feathers back in the pillow again. That's sort of the damage of gossip. You can never undo it. It just keeps kind of floating out there in the breeze. 
Well, when it comes to this issue of division, the feathers are out of the pillow. I mean, we've got hundreds of denominations around the world. We've got all kinds of churches that believe every kind of theological issue, major and minor. I think the unity pillow has been blown apart and the feathers are everywhere. So we should just say, well, I give up then. It doesn't matter because obviously the last 25 generations or 100 generations of Christians couldn't figure out how to get along. So no, it matters today because unity, again, is a sign of the supernatural among us. It's a sign that we can make things work. It's a sign that we don't have to end relationships when we disagree or we're hurt. And finally, unity, not uniformity. Unity does not mean we're all the same. It doesn't mean we all believe the same. It's a constant and intentional choice of we over me. You know, in the first century, when something went wrong in your, in your small group or in your Sunday school class or in your church, think about this. There was no church down the street. So what'd you do? You actually had to work things out. You actually had to talk to each other. As cubs, three of the world's top predators, a lion, Leo, a Bengal tiger, Sher Khan, and an American black bear, Baloo, had been owned by a drug dealer. Those are the kinds of people who own those three animals concurrently, evidently who didn't take proper care of them. The bear's harness grew into his skin because the owner didn't alter it as the bear grew. The animals had been abused and neglected early in life, but they're finally rescued in 2001. The bear's harness was surgically removed from its body. All three have recovered 100%. They're taken in by Noah's Ark Animal Sanctuary in Georgia. The staff initially tried to separate them, thinking the three large predators would fight. You can't have a lion, a tiger, and a black bear together. They're predators. But they acted out more when they were separated. During separation, the animals were uncooperative. Once they were reunited, they calmed down and they behaved. Twelve years later, the three friends spend their days together playing ball. I, don't, I really don't know what that means. I am reading it accurately. They're playing ball together, cuddling, chasing each other, and eating cookies. Well, that's why they're acting out. Allison Hedgecoth of Noah's Ark said, they live together and they don't see their differences. They don't see their color differences. I think it's a beautiful picture of the body. Just a group of people who otherwise would never be together. But to have that unity, not that we all have to be the same, it's a constant choice of we over me. And I, we don't do this perfectly. I don't do this perfectly. I do not do this perfectly. My nature is to fight over the theological integrity of every issue, because I care so much about this. My nature is to emphasize doctrinal purity over unity. And within the last week, within the last 24 hours, I failed. Because I was with a group of people I loved, and we got into a debate, and at the end of it, even though everyone loves each other, I felt like, I just don't like myself because I love them, even though we disagree. Unity. It's always a choice of we. 
being more important than me. God, we thank you for your word. And we recognize in all of our lives there's probably some painful history with the church, with relationships, over this issue of what's important and how do we prioritize it and how do we learn to love each other when we're going to disagree at the end of the day and we don't all see things the same way. What I think might be perfectly clear in the Bible, somebody else might not feel is quite as clear as I think it is, and vice versa. I pray that you would help us to remember that when we reflect unity, we're actually reflecting the supernatural. We're reflecting the Trinity in our Christian walk. Help us to be Christian fully. Part of that is the way we love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.